Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk Nation Radio, we're talking about last year's coup in Bolivia and the New York Times' belated uh, honest reporting on it. Our guest is Jake Johnston, who is a senior research associate at the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C. His research has focused predominantly on economic policy in Latin America, the International Monetary Fund, and U.S. foreign policy. Jake Johnston co-authored a report in March on the role of the Organization of American States, OAS, in the coup in Bolivia in November of last year. The New York Times has recently admitted that OAS claims of fraud in last year's Bolivian election were baseless, but at the time, that paper promoted those claims, while Jake Johnston and his colleagues refuted them. Jake Johnston, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for the work you're doing. Sometimes there are more coups than everyone can easily keep up with. Can you start by just reminding us what happened in Bolivia last year? Yeah, sure. And so, you know, I think there's obviously, uh, you know, a tremendous amount of background and context about what was happening in Bolivia. But the proximate crisis really occurred around the October 20th, 2019 election. Uh, and so on the night of the election, the preliminary vote count uh, was suspended, and this uh, caused a number of, you know, allegations of manipulation, etc. Uh, at that time, Evo Morales, the president of Bolivia, uh, was running for re-election, and when the preliminary results stopped, had a 7.5 percentage point lead, which was not enough to win the election in the first round. You need a 10 percentage point lead over second place. The next day, uh, the preliminary count restarted, and with the update. Abel Morales went above the 10 percentage point threshold uh, and appeared to be set to win the election in the first round. And this is when the OAS's role sort of really picks up in this all. And so that evening, the OAS put out a press release decrying a inexplicable and drastic change in the trend of the vote that undermines the credibility of the election. That was seized on by the opposition, many of whom had pledged to not respect the, re the results of the election anyhow, believing it was unfairly tilted towards Morales in the first place. Uh, protests spread across the country. Fast forward a few weeks, and the high command of the military called on Abel Morales to resign, and Abo acquiesced under tremendous pressure, kidnapping threats against other lawmakers, uh, and fled the country and is now in asylum in Mexico. And so, you know, I think that's sort of the basics around the election and sort of how that played a role in this. And certainly, you know, those initial claims from the OAS are really what's at the heart of this discussion today. So, Jake Johnston, the New York Times has recently reported on this and changed its tune uh, about the OAS. Is that correct? Yeah, so on Monday, the New York Times reported on a new academic study focusing on that initial claim uh, by the OAS that there had been this inexplicable trend change. And what they found was that, in fact, the OAS analysis itself was flawed, and they had used an inappropriate statistical method to do so, and it actually excluded a number of data points from their analysis. And if you accounted for that, their findings of this inexplicable trend change disappear. This was on Monday, June the 8th, to be clear, no matter uh, what date you're hearing this on your station. Uh, but the, the, to read that report from the New York Times, Jake, you, there, there's no mention that anybody got this right at the time, <laughs> that there was uh, any question at the time that, the, that, that it was simply appropriate to report whatever the OAS said uh, without any evidence, and that only now uh, has it become possible to think otherwise. Isn't that how they're sort of presenting it? 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's sort of presented as if this was the first, uh, you know, sort of dissenting opinion. Of course, it started one day after that OAS press release. Uh, it really was not that difficult for us to take a look at the data and see very quickly that once you accounted for geography, there was no inexplicable trend change. In fact, the trend of the vote had been favoring Morales over more and more over time as more and more rural votes were counted. And so what we saw was that you could predict the final outcome based on the early returns of the vote uh, before any suspension of the system, before any of these allegations arose. Uh, the data already indicated that it was very likely that Morales was with 10% with a 10% advantage. And, you know, we didn't just realize this on October 22nd. Uh, you know, we put out a press release calling on the OAS to retract its statement. Uh, I reached out directly to members of the OAS electoral team and communicated with them that their analysis had been flawed. And despite a recognition, in fact, even at that time, that it was flawed, they continued to repeat this for months and months and months. Months and obviously this has had tremendous implications. Of course, this this original statement not only sort of contributed to this narrative of fraud at the time, but then after the fact has been used to justify the coup d'état and the immense repression that we've seen in the aftermath of that. The statement that you put out was not kept secret, right? There were there were reports from independent journalists uh, that picked up on on your work. Uh, it just wasn't picked up on by the New York Times, Washington Post, etc. Right? Yeah, that's right. And I think you know there is uh, generally sort of uh, a willingness to take institutions' comments at face value, right, without any sort of skepticism of what they're saying. And you can see the danger of that, where there was really this this sort of consent, right, uh, you know, across the media that, oh, well, the OAS has confirmed fraud. And, and in fact, the New York Times reported it as such at the time. And, and the New York Times uh, relies now on a new study that itself uh, cites your past work uh, along with, with new information, uh, but the New York Times never mentions that, right? Never, never apologizes and never gives credit, right? Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, it, it's more than that, because I think, you know, it, those initial claims by the OAS, not only were they repeated in just about every media outlet across the world, uh, countless organizations, human rights groups, or whatever, cited those in their analysis of what was happening in Bolivia at the time. Uh, you know, what sort of effort is there to go back and, and issue corrections for all of the faulty materials and faulty analyses that were put out that were based on what we now know to be, and, you know, to be frank, knew at the time, some of us, uh, that, that this analysis was focus. And among those uh, citing uh, this baseless information at the time uh, and ever since was the was the U.S. State Department, right? And, and of course, the New York Times never mentions that the United States government uh, supported overturning the, the government uh, in Bolivia uh, and, and never, never suggests that the OAS might possibly have been biased in any way or that it might possibly have any history of this sort of behavior. Yeah, that's right. And actually, there was an interesting news report in January from the Los Angeles Times. Uh, reporter there, Tracy Wilkinson, uh, reported that the U.S. representative to the OAS, Carlos Trujillo, who is a you know, far-right sort of acolyte of Marco Rubio in, a, uh, you know, in, in, in South Florida, uh, actually steered the OAS observation mission to reach a determination of fraud. Right? And I think this is where you know the, the sort of reporting has really fallen down. It's, it's not just that this was wrong, that this was just a simple mistake, but really the reporting needs to get into why that initial press release was put out, what actually went into it, who made that decision. Uh, because we know it wasn't based on any statistical analysis. We know it wasn't based on any facts. 
uh, it was an intentional effort. And so getting to that issue, right, what happened there, that is at the core of so much of this. And that is what you know, the vast majority of the press have really not even bothered to look into. We're speaking with Jake Johnston, Senior Research Associate at the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington. Uh, th- this also seems to me, Jake, a little bit like the old WMD lies, uh, where you're supposed to assume that if the answer was yes, that some country had weapons of mass destruction, well, then it's okay to start a war and bomb that place. I, I mean, it- there seems to be never mentioned in any of the reporting on this that the, that the solution to this fictional problem of a fraudulent election would have been to hold a new election, not not a military coup and massacres of protesters, right? That that that's not, you know, a, a more democratic solution than the, the the alleged problem. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is where you know, sort of going back to that timeline uh, in October and November is really important, right? Because you had that press release, you had these uh, these protests spreading across the country, uh, and in order to try and sort of resolve this. It was actually Abel Morales himself who had called on the OAS to perform an audit of the election. Right? And so, again, the only information around fraud, the only allegation at that point was that there had been this inexplicable trend change. So the basis of calling for this audit, we now know, was bogus. But okay, so then we get the audit. And then on November 10th, the OAS, early, very early in the morning, released the preliminary version of this audit, and it recommends a new election. Now, Morales, with protests growing, police mutinying, actually agreed to hold new elections with a new electoral authority, right? And that was clearly not enough. This was no longer about actually a democratic election or elections at all, but rather overthrowing the Morales government, and that's exactly what happened. And... and has the OAS ever, uh, up to the moment we are <laughs> speaking, changed its tune or suggested it did anything wrong or apologized or tried to fix things? No, not whatsoever. I mean, so what the OAS has done and what the response to this most recent report in the New York Times is, is, you know, the statistics are basically a moot point. Direct quote from Gerardo de Acasa, the head of the OAS electoral department. And rather, they point to all of the other allegations of fraud they made well after the fact when their final audit came out, not until December, so over a month after the coup. And I think that's really important because, again, you're seeing a sort of similar dynamic with these other allegations as we saw with their initial claims about the statistics. Everyone took it at face value, and only eight months after the fact now are are, are sort of more people realizing it was bogus. But there still seems to be this willingness to accept the rest of the OAS allegations at face value despite the clear lack of credibility that this OAS audit had to begin with, right? And I think, you know, this is a really key point, because so long as the OAS is able to point to these other things on, without a word of skepticism, as the New York Times treats it, uh, you know, again, this will just repeat itself, where, again, they're not taking uh, any sort of bit of skepticism or any critical analysis of what the OAS is saying. And the report you mentioned that we put out in March actually uh, was not focused as much on the statistical part, but actually this large uh, body of work that they put out and all of the other evidence of, you know, quote-unquote, forged tally sheets, uh, hidden servers, and things of this nature, which have become these sort of catchy topics everyone can latch onto. But when we started taking a look at it, we realized that it wasn't just the specifics that were flawed. In fact, all of the evidence that they presented in this audit is highly misrepresented. They leave out key facts that run against their narrative, and they just grossly misrepresent some of their findings. 
<laughs> and uh, and if if they all added up to be true, if if these allegations were all uh, legitimate, uh, I mean, you still would have the problem that the solution is is an election, right? And and and, and I, I'm I'm tempted to ask what you think an independent uh, board would say in a similar review of of U.S. elections, of recent primaries in the state of Georgia and, and elsewhere? Yeah, I think that's a, a really key point. You know, one of the things that I think is really problematic with the OAS's work in Bolivia is that it seems to conflate uh, irregularities with systemic manipulation or fraud, right? Uh, and so what they do is they can hold up, you know, a, a small procedural thing that was not followed, and then, again, because of their statistical analysis, this is the, this is the sort of core of everything, right, is that there was this inexplicable trend change. And so then every irregularity you point to is viewed within that context and seen as part of the explanation for that inexplicable trend change. Now, if you remove the statistics from it, what you're looking at are just minor irregularities that if you looked at any election in the world, you would come across. And I think any serious electoral observer would agree with that. I, I I hate to say anything positive about the Washington Post, but they they actually got to this uh, earlier than the New York Times, right? Uh, despite being grossly wrong uh, when it really mattered. Yeah, so the Washington Post did run a, an opinion piece by two researchers from the MIT uh, uh, Election Data and Science Lab. Uh, now we had actually uh, contracted with those two researchers to try and replicate our findings, and this was because. Nobody in the press, and nobody was taking our findings seriously, uh, and, so, and so we were looking for somebody to to replicate them. And so, you know, we uh, contracted them to do that, but then they, you know, reached their own findings and, and you know did their own work and published this in the Washington Post. And what's what's really amazing, right, is that uh, you know, again, these people reached out to the OAS for comments. They reached out to try and get their data and their code. The OAS refused, didn't respond at all in some cases. Uh, and then issued a very defensive reaction once it was actually published. And so what you see is this, this pattern repeated, which is the OAS has no real intention of engaging with it. Uh, you know, the Georgetown professor who they contracted to do the statistical analysis, for example, uh, has not shared his data or his code. Now, the key of acad- academia is, is replication. Uh, if you don't share your code or your data, your findings are meaningless. Uh, so, okay, we've, we've debunked it, but even beyond that, just, the uh, academic rigor with which they're showing here is a total red flag. I couldn't agree more. Uh, but still, what seems most uh, most unprofessional is is the media reporting on claims without having uh, asked for any evidence at all. And and again, isn't there isn't there a pattern of this sort of thing? Don't you see similarities uh, that I think you've you've cited uh, or your colleagues have cited in in Haiti? Uh, and do you see any similarities with uh, what's been happening in Venezuela? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to sort of understand this isn't a, a one-off. This is the first time something like this happened. You mentioned the case of Haiti in 2010. The OAS brought in a uh, expert mission to analyze that election and it's the you know, domestic electoral and political crisis, contested election. And rather than actually review all of the votes, do a recount, call for a new election, what the OAS at the time recommended was simply removing certain tally sheets and altering the results of the election and moving the third-place candidate into second place. Uh, again, there was no statistical basis for this uh, at all, and of course that had a tremendous
Haiti. And I think that's why these are so, this is so important, right? This isn't just about Bolivia and the impact in Bolivia, but this is about what the OAS does and how its role impacts the hemisphere. And the lack of a credible or neutral arbiter in these events is a significant risk, no matter if you're a left government, a right government, a center government, uh, this is a tremendous risk for the entire hemisphere. I, I saw a, a tweet in the in the past week from a former Obama administration official about problems with the election in in the state of Georgia that said if this were happening in a foreign country we would insist on fair and independent uh, review and so forth. Uh, but when has the United States ever done that? Doesn't doesn't it usually insist on its chosen candidate being put into office? Yeah, exactly. I mean, what you see is that just selective enforcement, right? Uh, you know, Honduras is a perfect parallel in 2017. In fact, negotiations in 2017 in Honduras mirror very closely what happened here in Bolivia. Rather than the preliminary system, it was the official results system, but it went down for a period of 36 hours. And when it came back on, the results totally shifted. The opposition candidate who had been winning, his elite evaporated, and the incumbent, Juan Orlando Hernandez, who by the way, his brother has currently been charged with drug trafficking and himself implicated in those drug trafficking activities, uh, remains the president of Honduras today. Now, you look at the OAS reaction to that. Now, the OAS actually did not recognize the results of that election because of the problems that they identified. But nobody did anything about it. The U.S. was quick to recognize the election. The OAS quickly adopted Honduras into, into their regional organization. Uh, there was no repercussions whatsoever. Now, fast forward to Bolivia, they reach a similar conclusion, and the president is overthrown, and the U.S. quickly supports it, and everybody condemns it, right? And so, again, you can see how uh, the broader situation is clearly impacting this. And I think when you get into, you know, why this wasn't identified by members of the media, by members of the D.C. policy community early on, you just have to realize that there's uh, very little professional uh, advancement gotten by questioning powerful institutions or U.S. foreign policy in Latin America, and there's a tremendous professional advantage to not questioning it or not looking for the surface. And I think that's exactly what you see here, is that even people who were maybe privately skeptical would never have voiced a concern about what's happening because everyone seemed to be supporting the overthrow of Evo Morales. So why would you go against that? And this sort of group think which dominates U.S. policymaking and U.S. policy analysis uh, clearly has a, a you know, corrosive impact on, on the hemisphere and, and on the world. So back in, in the fall of, uh, of 2019, uh, this was happening, and you were reporting on it, uh, and, and other voices were reporting on it, but there wasn't uh, what was needed, right? I mean, we've seen the incredible power of uprisings in the United States in, in recent days and weeks uh, around Black Lives Matter demands, uh, with which I could not be more pleased. Uh, but what would, it, what would have had to be different in the situation or in U.S. culture uh, for masses of people to have taken to the streets in the United States uh, and changed U.S. and OAS policy uh, when it counted uh, in 2019 about Bolivia? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it is an inherently difficult thing. Foreign policy is often sort of put on the back burner. It's not necessarily something that's generally considered something that's not an important electoral issue. These things don't resonate with the American people. But I think, you know, we have to do a better job of explaining how these systems in place, how these institutions replicate what people are protesting in the U.S. all over the world, right? And, and it's not just that. It's, it's even more direct in terms of our support for police, our support for the military, our support for you know, these institutions all across the world that are replicating the system we are protesting here in the U.S., again, throughout the hemisphere and throughout the world. 
Can you can you explain uh, to me if you, if you know the answer? why people read the New York Times and, and the Washington Post and take them seriously uh, and believe what they say so that it, so that it matters so much uh, when these institutions uh, belatedly admit something that others were accurately reporting months earlier. Yeah, well, look, I mean, I think the papers certainly have a, a role to play. You know, I have plenty of criticisms, as I've made quite public, about the New York Times and Washington Post. I've also worked with reporters at both papers for many years uh, and been pleased with some of their reporting, right? And so I think what's important is that, you know, people don't rely only on these organizations and these media organizations to try and look for a broader perspective, because certainly when things are going against conventional wisdom here in the U.S., uh, major media is often real slow to turn around on that. I think you're very, very generous. Uh, what, what, uh, what's the situation going going forward in Bolivia? There's a, a permanent interim president, and that's uh, that's what we can expect to to see for the coming years. And certainly, the coup government is still in place with the strong backing of the country's military. Uh, there have been uh, elections called, scheduled for September 6th. Now they were originally scheduled for May. Uh, and were delayed, delayed due to coronavirus. But you know, it's a very worrying situation. I mean, obviously, there are still a tremendous amount of repression. There are uh, you know former mass politicians and activists who are in jail still on trumped up charges. Uh, you know, the environment is obviously extremely worrying. Beyond that, there's concerns that the election itself may not even happen then. Uh, de facto, President Jimmy Nadez actually come out publicly against that electoral date saying that it's too soon. Uh, but again, this was a government that initially, right, again, was justified as a very short-term caretaker government simply to hold new elections. Uh, what we've seen is the exact opposite of that. They have dismantled state institutions. They have drastically changed the nation's foreign policy. Uh, and they are consolidating power in an unelected government and a government that has fought uh, the Abel Morales administration for years and years and years. Uh, and so what we've seen is just a non-democratic and non-elected government sort of usurp power and then consolidate that power. And what do you recommend to people who want to learn more, but also who want to improve the situation? What's what's possible? What should people uh, do who want to, to help and work for uh, actual democratic uh, progress in Bolivia? Yeah, I think that's, you know, it's a, it's a great question, right? And I think, you know, when, when we're talking about what the, what people can do and then how to impact this sort of situation from the U.S., I think one of the, the most clear ways is, is by calling your representative, calling a member of Congress. Uh, you know, there was nary a peep from anybody in Congress when this happened. But the only people who was sort of early on calling this a coup and stuff by that the whole time was Bernie Sanders. And he took a lot of flack for it at the time. Uh, and you've seen even top five advisors citing the OAS study, et cetera, members of Congress, uh, you know, sort of focused supporting what had happened in Bolivia. But, you know, in order to change that, uh, again, I mean, if you're trying to change the OAS, you're trying to change the policy, uh, members of Congress need to know that their constituents care about these issues, right? Uh, and then so often they can ignore them with very little cost. Uh, frankly, that cost needs to be raised for the, for the U.S. to change that policy. 
And with just a few minutes that we have left, uh, where can people go to, to follow up with your work? And, and what do you recommend uh, that, people, that people read and, and people go to who want uh, to stay well informed, uh, both about, about Bolivia last year and about whatever's coming in the next year? Yeah, so certainly, uh, you know, we've, we've continued to be writing, writing about this, and I'm, I'm sure we will continue to write about it. Our website is cepr.net. Uh, but also, I mean, I think, you know, what's important is just uh, looking for alternative voices, right? looking for the people who uh, are not just uh, going to, you know, write a press release from a powerful institution uh, as a news article, but who can actually provide some analysis context to a situation. And I think, you know, again, there's not one answer, right? But it is, uh, you know, always searching for, for new pieces of information, for new outlets, for new voices, uh, and doing your best to be to be as sort of broad as you can be. It, it seems to me that uh, that Bernie Sanders uh, ran for president uh, four years ago uh, and was pretty awful on foreign policy, uh, and a lot of peace advocates uh, lobbied him hard to be better the next time around, uh, and he didn't, at least yet, get the nomination, but uh, he certainly was dramatically improved on, on foreign policy. So it is, it is possible, if there's a big enough concern effort, uh, and if someone sees an electoral advantage in it, uh, to move members of Congress, uh, representatives and senators, and even presidential candidates, isn't it? I mean, people should should believe they can they can move their their Congress members and senators uh, in some cases if they really work at it, right? Yeah, I think that's exactly right, and I think you know the. Be, it, it can seem very daunting, but I think the actual the actual sort of barriers are pretty low. Uh, you know, not a lot of people push members of Congress. Not a lot of people are calling their their representatives and, and making these demands. And and a, a small organized campaign can really have a, a massive difference. You know, and especially on an issue like U.S. foreign policy in Latin America, where uh, a lot of people, a lot of members, etc., are, are just sort of going along with what has been the status quo, not pushing back, but. They don't have any real allegiance to that. Uh, it's just convenient. And so, again, raising that cost, changing that political calculus uh, can go a very long way. But is the, is the OAS, is the Organization of American States, something that can be held accountable in any way by direct public pressure or, or media coverage? Is it something that people can, can appeal to directly, or do they need to go through the United States Congress? Yeah, the OAS, it's a, it's a great question. And the OAS is really, uh, you know, sort of has, has never really been held accountable for its action. Now, it, it receives almost 50% of its funding from the U.S. Congress. And so, you know, congressional members have an immensely important role. Uh, you know, they could call hearings, bring people from the OAS in and have them testify under oath about what actually happened. Uh, they have this power, right? They could empower the State Department Inspector General to review the actions of uh, the U.S. in the OAS. Uh, there is jurisdiction. There is a way to do this. Now, targeting the OAS, uh, you know, again, I mean, I think, you know, the interesting part about the OAS is this is uh, an organization made up of member countries throughout the hemisphere. And so there is a role to be played not just here in the U.S., but uh, across the hemisphere in terms of everyone uh, sort of pressuring their governments for a more responsive and uh, credible international organization that the OAS would be. But it's also important to realize the OAS uh, as an institution it has been around for some time, but really was a, you know, developed as a tool for Western and U.S. control of the hemisphere, and it has really always been such. And so there have been some 
changes some minor things over time. But, you know, it is important to recognize that that is the origin of the institution. Very important to know and very important work that uh, you've been doing. We've been speaking with Jake Johnston, who is a senior research associate at the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C. We'll have some links up to his work at talknationradio.org. And Jake, thank you very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you so much for having me. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. Read or listen to today's Peace Almanac entry at peacealmanac.org. All past shows can be heard at talknationradio.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is supported by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.